welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Telford in the UK, where I am teaching with Westminster Theological Center this week at one of our annual residentials where all of our hubs come together. Typically, I'm based in Cheltenham, and I am co-host with Matthew Bates in Illinois and Aaron Heim in Denver, and last and least, Drew Johnson in New York City. Haha, <laughs> Drew. No, Drew, you're not least um you're just you're just different okay in addition to the onscript co-hosts i mentioned our last episode that the onscript team consists of a group of planners producers and promoters including the wonderful ed hatke who produces each and every episode of this podcast out of the goodness and generosity of his heart so thank you so much ed you have really made a difference Uh, We also have Tommy Mullman on social media. If you've noticed a significant uptick in that domain, that's why, because Tommy's been helping us out recently and it's making a difference as well. And also helping there is Paul Young, uh, who's been uh, pitching in to uh, help our uh, social media work. So thank you, Paul. And then we have uh, Kenneth Paget, who is doing some design work for us. So all this to say, first of all, thank you to our wonderful team. And to give you, the listeners, a small picture of what it takes to pull this off. Um, there's a lot of behind-the-scenes work uh, in, a, in a, the production of a podcast. And we're really privileged to have uh, people helping us out. Because uh, those of us who, who coast this podcast... Uh, we all have full-time jobs, and so to do this on the side um, is, you know, requires that kind of help. Um, and then we also have our monthly donors who, who help keep the po- podcast uh, operation afloat. So thank you so much to all of you who give regularly or who give one-off gifts. Um, if you would like to support what we do at OnScript, maybe just for $5 a month uh, or less, you can go over to onscript.study forward slash donate and we will not stand in your way. Um, If you're unable to donate, maybe you could make a point this week of giving us a review on iTunes. I hear um, that that helps us somehow in the grand scheme of of God's providence. I'm not sure exactly how, but it does somehow. Or um, it just, you know, be sure to tell at least one random stranger this week why they should listen and then see their reaction and perhaps tweet their reaction uh, at OnScript Podcast. So Matt Bates is hosting for this episode, so I'll turn it over to him and I hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for listening. Hello, OnScript listeners. Gender. Wow. Gender conversations have been a little intense lately, haven't they? News every day, social media fights all day. Gender has become complex, hyper-theorized, and the present climate of discourse is emotionally fraught. What can we learn from the ancient world? At least, what can we learn beyond the platitude that antiquity was hopelessly patriarchal and misogynist? 
I have two distinguished guests with me today, Professors Lynn Kohick and Amy Brown-Hughes. Welcome to OnScript, Lynn and Amy. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Lynn and Amy have co-authored Christian Women in the Patristic World, Their Influence, Authority, and Legacy in the 2nd through 5th Centuries with Baker Academic 2017. This book is particularly exciting. Not only is it timely given the gender discussions in our broader culture, it's also very engagingly written and fills a true gap in the literature. All right, Amy, Lynn, I'm going to start with a big provocative question. Is that okay? <laughs> All righty. <laughs> sure, go for it. All right, you're, you're on the hook immediately. Um, you've just written this great book on women in early Christianity. Uh, Lynn, you've actually written a separate book on this, focusing more specifically on the New Testament era. So in light of your studies, uh, what's, the lar- what's the largest frustration that you have with the way current gender discussions are being carried out in the North American context? Largest frustration. I can go first. Um, I would say uh, for me, uh, specifically within, maybe within Christianity, um, uh, I won't go much broader than that, is, uh, is the lack of deep thought about the tradition in general. Like drawing from, not just from the scriptures, but from how the Christian tradition has thought through things. Uh, we like to reinvent the wheel a lot. <laughs> Um, and we also, uh, I think, don't realize the resources that we have to draw from. So a lot of the conversations tend to be very sort of skim the surface that have a lot of platitudes uh, or sort of soundbite sort of things when there's some very rich discussion throughout Christianity that we could draw from, uh, but we sort of automatically assume uh, that it's not there or that, uh, or that it's, it doesn't matter. Yeah, thanks. You, you want to weigh in also, Amy? Or this is Lynn. Oh, <laughs> yeah. sorry, other way around. I'm now yeah, confusing that's all right. my guests our, already. As our I mothers don't have your do that up. all the time, too, <laughs> you know. Um, the, I'd say for me, the, the issue is structural. I think for the Christian uh, community um, to... I think what's good is that when they see um, sexual harassment, overt uh, sexual discrimination, they want to say to the person who committed that act, you know, you need to apologize, you need to ask forgiveness, uh, you need to change your behavior, and all of that is great. But I think, uh, especially in the evangelical world, there's not as much a focus on how we might change structures, organizations, uh, our our broader cultural thought patterns, such that that kind of joking, harassment, um, and and unacceptable behavior is is stopped at that cultural or structural level. Hmm. Yeah. So there's some larger sort of systemic problems that um, that seem to be um, uh, in view that sometimes don't get discussed. Exactly. Yeah. I think so. And. Um, and I don't want to say everything is structural, not, not by any stretch, but I think there is a component of this problem that is not, it needs to be addressed and not simply by each individual just doing a better job. Absolutely. Well, th- <laughs> All right. Th- thanks, Len. Thanks, Amy. Let's, let's flip that around then. And what do you find most encouraging? Uh, how about you, Amy? Um, I would say um, that... 
I think it's really quite amazing to just see, like, as, as a professor, it's very encouraging to see young women um, stepping into who they want to be and who they're called to be. Um, it's, quite, it's quite encouraging to look out and just see, to be able to have good conversations with them about, uh, and frank conversations with them, <laughs> uh, about what the world is like, but also seeing them uh, stepping into things uh, with great courage and bravery. Um, I find that to be incredibly encouraging. Um, I think being a professor is really helpful in that area because it helps to when everything around seems like it's just falling apart, uh, to see, to work with young people who are so, um, stunning and focused and gifted and humble and strong, uh, is, is really quite amazing. Uh, and especially the young women going into various things, whether they're going into graduate school or ministry or business or something like that, because I get to work with students across the board, not just majors. Uh, I, I find that to be uh, very encouraging. Um, and seeing churches responding to them, too. Seeing, uh, seeing good work come out, seeing more articles written by women, seeing more women on panels. Now, we're, <laughs> now we, we're still not doing terribly well on that, uh, uh, especially on, as Lynn mentioned on the systemic level. Um, but there are more women stepping out and, and, uh, and really producing some really great work. Yeah, and I would add to that, I think the culture today um, in, recognizes that in certain fields, um, you have sort of the gatekeepers, the um, Weinsteins, um, who affect so many people's careers, and in politics and in entertainment, and frankly, also in uh, the academy, you have these important gatekeepers that in the past, um, because they had such power, a few... Uh, of them really took advantage of that. And I think now, you know, their number's up. And and younger um, academicians, both men and women, um, you know, are um, are aware and, and are um, not going to, you know, are going to stand up against, uh, against that. And I would add then also, I think uh, we're moving beyond, in a lot of ways, we're moving beyond the what can women do? You know, can they be uh, ordained in the church? And if so, at what level can they be ordained and all that? To thinking about how are women uh, impacting their their surroundings? So you have women who wouldn't necessarily feel comfortable with official ordained women leading in their church. And yet these women are heading up ministries that are uh, shining the gospel light and are affecting the world in such amazing ways in areas of, let's say, sex trafficking or in helping refugees or all kinds of things. And so uh, not to drag us back to our actual book, but the, uh, <laughs> the subtitle, Influence, Authority, and Legacy, I feel like that is still uh, really, uh, really in the forefront today, that we're, we're moving kind of beyond does a woman hold a particular office? And if not, well, then she really can't do anything. To women, no matter what they think about the, the official, you know, sort of posts that a woman can hold, nevertheless, they're feeling empowered to actually make a difference. And that's, that's exciting. 
Yeah, that is that is really exciting. I like how you you sort of speak into your immediate context of, of being a professor, but also at sort of the larger level of what's going on in in our society. And I liked how you said uh, uh, the number uh, the numbers up for some of these gatekeepers. Um, do you, so do you mind if we uh, if we move to the ancient world now? Is that will uh, get us to dig into your book in a little bit more detail? Um, I want to give listeners a feel for the kind of text and the data that you're treating in your book. So I'm going to read an excerpt from The Passion of Perpetua and Felicitas, uh, which is a text you treat extensively in your second chapter, and then uh, we'll ask some questions about it. So the day before Perpetua is to die in the, in the Roman arena for her loyalty to the Lord Jesus, she has a vision, and she's actually been having a series of visions. But in this particular vision, a deacon greets her, gives her a white robe, and then leads her to the arena. And then um, I'll go ahead and read directly from the text starting now. And there came out against me a certain ill-favored Egyptian with his helpers to fight with me. Also there came to me handsome young men, my helpers and aiders. And I was stripped naked, and I became a man. And my helpers began to rub me with oil, as was their custom uh, for a contest. And over against me, uh, I saw that the Egyptian was wallowing in the dust. Wow, that's a pretty provocative <laughs> passage for male-female discussions, is it not? Right? Uh, and especially that line, you know, and I was stripped naked and I became a man. And then following after, after her words saying this, I was stripped naked and I became a man. And then her naked body is rubbed with oil by these handsome young men. Um, uh, I'm not sure if we can teach this to our undergraduates. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I don't put in my PowerPoint, I don't put up visuals. So. Well, that's, that's, the, yeah. that's, that's, that's probably a, a good idea. I taught it this semester. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. No, I, I was obviously just teasing and saying that we can't teach this to our undergrads. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's definitely a, a provocative uh, text, right? What's going on with this text? Well, let me jump in, and then I'm anxious to hear how Amy um, uh, taught it and what, what the students' responses were. I think, first of all, this is one of the visions that Perpetua has, and it is given to her uh, by the Lord to help her in her hour of need, which is coming very soon, in the arena. And so the purpose of this is to show that she will, in fact, be victorious over uh, death and will win the crown of life. So that's one thing. Secondly, um, this is her death and the rest of the martyrs will happen um, during the games that celebrate one of the emperor's son's birthdays. So it will be uh, maybe what we can think of as like the gladiatorial games um, that Hollywood, you know, might put on or today, if you can imagine those, you know, or um, Christians thrown to the beasts, um, and there'll be spectators that'll be watching this. And um, the although we have trouble imagining that there could be any kind of uh, morality <laughs> that the Romans would hold to in this kind of setting, in fact, there are. They um, they would not uh, countenance a man wrestling with a woman. It just wouldn't really be. Uh, it just wouldn't happen. And so in her vision, as she is fighting, uh, is going to go up against evil, which she would see as um, as Satan, uh, the powers of darkness against which uh, Christ fought and then was victorious. As she does that, um, it, she, she has to be able to uh, participate uh, as a believer. And in the imagery, she becomes um, a man uh, be so that she can fight this Egyptian, which stands for kind of the arch enemy of 
of the godly, if you think back to the ancient Israelite uh, story. So there's a lot of symbolism here, and that is also then expressed. She 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 uh, sees herself as a man in order for her for for the vision to make sense. But it's I, I don't see it as her thinking she's inadequate as a female um, in in you know in her uh, faithful walk to the Lord. Yeah, and I also think that in general, when we're talking about a text like this, uh, especially martyrdom, this is fundamentally about Christ's passion. Um, it's about the the martyr uh, living into and becoming uh, the fellowship of sharing in Christ's suffering, and that's how uh, that's how they're going to be rendering it, and uh, definitely how the authors how they rendered it, and as well as how readers would have read it as well. Uh, so uh, Perpetua is not the only one, right? Um, I think we also talk about Lynn. I think in this chapter you also talk about Polycarp as well, right? Um, where he also where he says that because then there it's very famous, right? Where um, that he's enjoined by a voice from heaven to be a man, Polycarp, um, and a man who he he's quite old, and so there's this there's this play on not just uh, on virility as well. Um, and, and he's male, but he's a very old man. So sort of showing courage, what does it look like? Because the Romans understand a very particular understanding of what virility and courage was and what it meant to be a man. And so you have Perpetua, um, uh, in her vision, seeing this and then going out into the arena, what everyone around her would be seeing as well as sort of a, uh, a kind of redefinition of, of courage, um, yeah, in fact, just to even pick up on that, Paul uses a term, be courageous, in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13. And that that word uh, can be translated as, be a man. And the um, English translations today, I think, rightly translate it as, be courageous. But, in, but the way the Greek language works, to be courageous is to be a man. So they use the word for man in this verb um, to, to describe what courage means. And so all of that is kind of packaged into um, the vision that Perpetua, the Perpetua has. And there's understood in there a read, uh, uh, an orientation about what it means to, like, it's, it's about Christ. Like, fundamentally, um, he's someone who dies, right, who suffers, who is, who's put up on a cross, um, and uh, sort of redefining not just what courage is, but what it means to be a human person, <laughs> um, what it means to, to defeat one's enemy. There's a complete reorientation of all of this, and, um, and gender becomes one of those sort of arenas uh, where that happens. There's another famous story um, of Blandina, um, and she, as a slave woman, is martyred. Um, and at one point, while she's there in front of the crowd, she stretches she stretches out her arms, and she represents to uh, the people looking on Christ um, there suffering on the cross. So there's just a lot of symbolism that takes advantage of how uh, the the culture at that time used gender and then often just turns it right on its head as it presents the gospel message of suffering in love that led to victory over evil and death. 
Yeah, that's really, um, I, I think that's really helpful to, to sort of focus on Christ and how uh, he's sort of the inspiration here. And um, one of the things I think that you do well in the book is you're sort of advocating for, for reading women responsibly in the ancient world. And um, I think you have some specific ideas about that. But um, certainly the way that this text might get mobilized in a modern context would be to sort of support some sort of, you know, um, idea of gender fluidity or something along those lines. And I, I think you correctly show that that's not what's really going on in the text. Um, but, but we're certainly seeing uh, uh, an interaction with uh, Roman values and sometimes a subversion of those. Uh, and I think it's powerfully done. Um, let, me, let me go ahead and introduce you uh, just a little more properly for our audience. Um, I'll start with Amy. Um, Amy Brown Hughes received her PhD in historical theology with an emphasis in early Christianity from Wheaton. She has co-authored the book under discussion today, which is Christian Women in the Patristic World, and edited and contributed to a number of essay volumes. She also received an MA in History of Christianity from Wheaton and a BA in Theology and Historical Studies from Oral Roberts. She enjoys highlighting the contributions of minority voices to theology, especially those of women. So here's my question for you, Amy, given you've completed uh, given you've completed a, a you know a BA and MA and a PhD in theology and historical studies, you've obviously uh, sustained an interest in this topic for a very long time, uh, a, a large portion of your life. And you say a little bit about this in the intro um, about um, uh, about how this came about, but it just left me wanting to hear more. So, uh, how did this interest come about and blossom for you in historical theology? Sure. So, um, I think when I was in my undergraduate, um, I what I found because because O. R. Roberts is a is a Pentecostal charismatic institution, um, and that's my tradition. And so I grew up in a very non liturgical, non creedal. I, I knew almost nothing about Christian history. Um, uh, just I mean, there were other emphases that were part of my tradition growing up. And so when I got to ORU, uh, one of the things that really struck me was. Um, being a part of the larger Pentecostal tradition with Azusa Street and all that, that was not really part of my experience because um, I was in a sort of uh, specifically a very uh, uh, white version of Pentecostalism where I was from and, and ORU uh, down in Oklahoma and uh, was sort of helped me become a part of the larger tradition in a different way. And so I was already kind of moving towards opening up towards uh, uh, not only my own tradition, but in general, I had a great teacher um, I think it was my sophomore year, who talked about the Montanists in class. And I was listening to these prophetic women <laughs> who baptized and all this stuff, and I said, wow, that sounds a whole lot about what I grew up with. Uh, so I actually did my senior thesis on them and thought about the prophetic voice through a couple of different instances, the Montanists being that. So that was my first foray with patristics. Um, and then when I went into my master's, uh, I played around also was very interested in the medieval period as well, but it was my final year where my, who would be my future advisor came to Wheaton, um, George Galantis, and he, uh, as a patristic scholar, um, and he helped me work through doing a thesis, and then uh, he was my advisor for the PhD program. Um, but specifically for my dissertation, maybe what you're referring to in the book, uh, was uh, I went to a very uh, under-resourced um, and fantastic church in downtown Aurora, Illinois, um, and it was, it's small, it's right in the center, right down the street from, uh, homeless shelters and live-in addiction programs and, and such, and a very diverse community. 
Um, and a lot of the a lot of the people in my church um, weren't the sort that would uh, necessarily read a lot of the books that I was reading and such. They were doing you know other things. Um, but what really struck me was how uh, eagerly. Um, everyone would just eat up anything about the Christian tradition. So it's like finding extended family. It was very similar to what happened to me in my BA. It was like, oh, extended family. Hey, let's all get together. <laughs> like, this is neat. Like, um, and that specific moment was when um, uh, one, of the, one of the elders or pastor's daughters came up to me. And this was many years ago now. And, and she said, you know, I, I grew up in this church. Everybody knows me, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm pastor's daughter, you know. So uh, what does it look like for me to be part of the church as a single woman who's an adult uh, who's sort of coming into her own? Where's my place? And we had several conversations about that after that because she really helped me sort of ground my work to answer her question, which I have heard in many other ways in many other venues from many other women. Uh, and to, to, to have a tradition where you can kind of look back and go, hey, I've extended um, aunts or <laughs> grandparents or however you want to look at it, uh, friends, sisters, mothers who I can look to and say, hey, like, I'm not the first one to, to participate in the tradition and to offer something to the church. Um, and not only that, but there are eminent people that I can look at and who I can see myself walking in their footsteps. I really like how you sort of frame that as uh, as an extended family sort of metaphor and um, and helping people to connect more fully to that, um, especially those who haven't always been able to connect. Um, Lynn, uh, how about we how about we turn to you then? So Lynn Kohick is professor of New Testament at Wheaton College. Prior to coming to Wheaton in 2000, Lynn taught for three years in Nairobi, Kenya. She researches the way Jews and Christians lived out their faith in the ancient settings of Hellenism and the Roman Empire, and how Jews and Christians today can better appreciate and understand each other. Lynn also explores women's lives in the ancient world. Uh, In addition to the present book, she has published Philippians in the Story of God commentary series, Ephesians in the New Covenant commentary series, and a book that might particularly interest some of our listeners, uh, Women in the World of the Earliest Christians, also published by Baker. Now, Lynn, obviously, uh, you've mentored many young women and men in biblical and early Christian studies as you are uh, a more senior scholar. Now, I'm not calling you old, Lynn. Uh, 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 <laughs> or, I'll, or I'll hang up right now. Is that yes, it? Yes, <laughs> uh, that wasn't maybe the right way to frame that. I, um, I'm, I'm adjusting to the reality. That's okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm trying to do some adjusting in that regard, too. As I turned 40 this year, I'm kind of like, oh, Oh, goodness, you have no is, idea. It's this just is getting a real. Pup. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's getting real now, though. Um, yeah. Anyway, but I, yeah, the the sort of junior scholar label is starting to fall off, and I'm yeah realizing I'm in a new world. Um, but anyway, you've you've mentored many, I think, um, both both women and men, and I I was curious if that played a, a role in in terms of your th- your thought process or your research at all in this book or your personal experiences in mentoring, um, if any of that impacted uh, your book in any way. I, th- I think so. Sure. Um, there, there seems to be like Amy, I think there is a, a need for us to understand our past so that we are better able to go, uh, in, into the future. And I, I think, uh, 
both of us um, felt that there was also a lot of misinformation uh, that was out there. So not just that we didn't know anything, but what we thought we knew actually isn't going to stand up under close scrutiny. And so I think that was also a burden of this of this book. And for me, not only mentoring individual students, but also thinking about how groups interacted. Um, so with the with my focus on the New Testament, the most obvious two groups that seem to be at odds are the emerging group of uh, Jews, who then include Gentiles who follow um, the Messiah Jesus, and other Jews at the time who were absolutely adamant that Jesus was not, in fact, the Messiah. And so you see these groups uh, going at each other, uh, arguing, uh, and in and through that arguing, uh, the the Christians themselves, I think, come out with a clearer sense of who they are, what they have in common with their Jewish brothers and sisters, and how they might differ. Uh, and that same, I think, dynamic uh, can also uh, you can you can see that a bit today as we think about uh, men and women and their uh, responsibilities and and activities in the church, um, and and so. Very often, evangelicals look back to the biblical text to, tr to get answers, which is always terrific, uh, about some of the pertinent modern questions. And I think this book that Amy and I did, trying to set the uh, appropriate stage for what was going on in the early church, what were their conversations, so that people had the tools and the background to be able to answer some of the questions they have today about how they function as men and women in the church. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, as I as I kind of think about, you know, your book and its contribution, um, one of the things that really stands out to me is the way that this seems to fit a niche um, is that it, it really locates women as theologically generative, like that they actually um, aren't just sort of, you know, an aside in some way in early Christian history, um, but uh, or, or sort of, you know, um, something around which men theologize or something like that, but the, they themselves uh, uh, actually contributed and contributed theologically in really important ways. And I don't think there's been a book that uh, that really surveys that. Um, there's been, I think, books that have touched on aspects of that, but um, nothing that really kind of comprehensively um, surveys that. Um, and I wanted to read a, a quote here from your, um, your introduction, page 22. So this would be Roman numeral 22. Uh, and then um, uses as a way of kind of talking about um, how you're positioning your whole project. Um, let me go ahead and read for, um, um, from uh, page 22 then for you. You say this, our approach stands over against both those works of modern scholarship that simply lament and dismiss the church fathers as hopelessly misogynistic, as well as those that take a naive, pious perspective on the evidence. For both approaches fail to deal analytically with the sources. Within these early Christian writings, we find disparaging comments about women or the female sex, as well as active engagement and genuine conversation with learned women. We do not read the church fathers' statements about women as direct windows into church doctrine and practice. Rather, we nuance these texts by considering the ways women themselves shape their lives and their social worlds. And that seems like um, a lot of what you're trying to do uh, uh, in this book here. Uh, is that you're trying to find this middle ground between dismissiveness, right, uh, sort of like the line, like, well, the church fathers are just so sexist, right? And then on the other hand, naive piety, well, the church fathers are just holy, right? We, they're beyond reproach. We couldn't possibly question them. Um, and so what does this responsible middle end up looking like for you? I think one of the things that it does is it 
it tries to to suggest that there is theology going on not simply at the councils. There were no women seated there at the councils, or uh, in those um, times when the creeds were produced. That that's not the sum total of what theology was in in this time. And I'll let Amy expand on that. That's more her area. Yeah. So um, basically, the idea is that. Um, I think when we look back at things, we see these councils and go, oh yeah, there's the theology, but it's actually um, a lot of the things that were happening around all of that. Um, and it's not even just the treatises, um, because there's a lot of different kinds of ways of, of doing theology. And one of the terms we uh, use in the book is that of a performing theology, um, where these, these women and men as well, um, the ascetics, the different uh, groups of people in their the congregations and their churches were, especially these women, um, were performing theology in their bodies. Um, if they were ascetics, then living as a virgin, they understood that as Christological, as a, uh, and, and a very thick theological understanding of that. Um, and they might not have written that down. Now, other people wrote about them and would comment on that to some extent. So we have some ideas of how they sort of received that. Um, but we tried to give some voice to the fact that um, we're seeing the effect that women have on, uh, on their brothers or their, or their uh, sons in, in a couple of cases in the book or, um, or the people that uh, the bishops in their congregations or the priests or whatnot or just other um, other co-laborers in, in fellowship with Christ, um, that their effect that they were having was not just sort of an icing on top of a cake sort of situation, uh, but that what they were doing was the development of theology, that they were just, they were just as in the middle of it as everyone else was. Um, they just um, weren't necessarily uh, writing a lot of that down. Now, there is some discussion about well, what does it look like, that transition between when, when a man picks up the pen and starts writing about that, does, she, does this woman's experience and her participation get erased? Um, and, and, and I think it's some, sometimes it depends on the source uh, as far as how removed uh, this person was from that. And it's hard to make some definitive conclusions on that. Um, but I, I, I do think that it is possible to, uh, it's, it, well, that it's impossible actually to say that these women were sort of um, not a part of the theological development, but in fact were um, necessary. That, that a lot of these councils, a lot of these discussions wouldn't have gone the way they were uh, without women um, on the ground, in their churches, living devoted lives, and engaging with one another um, in a theological endeavor. You know, and you mentioned uh, Perpetua, um, her her witness, if you will, her witness uh, was profound in subsequent generations. Augustine has a couple of sermons um, that he gives on on the her birthday, which is the day that she was martyred, um, and it, she she is she excites the imagination of the average Christian at this time and her story propels them to faithful living. The same thing happens with the figure of Thecla, who uh, was sort of the first martyr, if you will. Um, her, her story happens in the second century. But um, I think one of the things that at times happens as we 
look back in history, we imagine that the bishops who are there at these councils kind of existed in a separate plane, not really engaged in their churches. And that's far from the truth. They were as interested in the developing piety, which included um, discussion about relics. Um, It was a discussion about the authority and teaching of the martyrs, um, and then subsequent uh, the memory of the martyrs, such that uh, Augustine was involved in, uh, because he lived at a time when the the church was um, uh, allowed to exist in the Roman Empire. I guess my point is that we don't want to imagine that women were just kind of popular figures that only the uneducated were, you know, just kind of interested in their stories, but rather the the bishops themselves and the the those who were writing these theological treatises were as engaged in the life of the church, which included uh, the martyrs, as as anybody else. Yeah, I think that's that's really well put, and I, I think you do a good job of sort of highlighting the distinct contribution of your book, which is you know that women were actually um, theologically important, right, uh, in earliest Christianity, and I think you show that well. Uh, because undoubtedly, we're not going to have time to to get through every portion of your book. I wonder if one of you wants to try to tackle sort of a whirlwind two or three minute overview of. Um, you know, of what you cover in terms of um, uh, of the various uh, uh, female figures. Any, either of you want to tackle that? It's ambitious. Oh, maybe. I think we can tag team it, Lynn. We can just sort of go through our, yeah, why don't you start with your chapters? Sure, sure. So uh, we, we decided as we were looking into this that one of the threads that we could weave through all of the chapters was this figure of Thecla that I just mentioned. She's a second century um, figure, literary figure, that probably has some historical basis. Um, and her her story, you can get it on the uh, online. It, her name, Thecla, is uh, spelled T-H-E-C-L-A. Readers just want to read that story. It's part of the Acts of Paul and Thecla, an early, as I say, a second century document. And um, she, her, she embraces the ascetic life. Uh, she uh, overcomes great obstacles, including possible death um, in in an arena um, like a martyr, um, and and she uh, influences and teaches um, for uh, for many. Uh, she becomes this, but she, but she's also fuzzy enough that that you can shape her story of faithfulness and commitment unto death. Because uh, at the very end of the story, she does have a, kind of a miraculous uh, exit from this life. I don't want to spoil it uh, for the reader uh, to find out how that all happens. But um, but anyway, her her story then become is, is very it's compelling through the through the second through the fifth centuries. The timeline that we have, uh, she pops up over and over again as as this figure that has captured the imagination. One who uh, has self-control, is ascetic, uh, is living this kind of attempted resurrection life, if you will, now, uh, and a life of absolute faithfulness, uh, even unto death. So that that kind of shapes the, the period of the martyrs um, that are the uh, early centuries. And then, Amy, you can pick it up with uh, Helena and Constantine. 
Yeah, so I mean, we've already mentioned Perpetua and such um, that that shapes the first couple of chapters of the book, and then when we pick up again with the transition from this really fascinating transition the church goes into from the period of the uh, Diocletianic per persecution and then into Constantine's reign, uh, in that same chapter, um, in chapter four, uh, I talk about uh, bring Thecla comes up again with uh, a really wonderfully weird. Uh, work in early Christianity is one of my absolute favorites, a symposium by Methodius of Olympus. Uh, he basically rewrote uh, Plato's symposium, but instead of ten men talk, Athenian men talking about about sex and love, it's uh, ten virgins talking about the eschaton, and it's um, wonderfully awesome. Yeah, and, I have a question uh, about that. I have a question <laughs> about that later. Uh, and Thecla the, is right. the Thecla is um, the major, like the leader uh, or the winner of the speeches, uh, rather, in that work. Um, so she pops up there, and then uh, all of these people, a lot of these people that we talk about in the book, read each other's work. So Gregory of Nessa, whose sister Macarena, who's going to have the secret name her secret name at birth of Thecla, will have read, uh, he read Methodius of Olympus, um, and perhaps Macrina did as well. Um, and so we go into how they're, they're always sort of reading each other's things and, and their theology. You can sort of see how it connects. Uh, we also talk about uh, Augustine's mother, Monica, and, and especially his a couple of his earlier dialogues, which tend to be not as well known as perhaps uh, his confessions or the city of God. Of course, Monica is... Uh, a huge part of the confessions, but we look at some of the other dialogues where she is a participant and says particularly marvelous things, um, and Augustine's treatment of that is a lot of fun. Um, and then we spend time looking at women uh, who spent time in large theological controversies, like the Origenist controversy. Um, Melania the Elder and her granddaughter Melania the Younger on, on one side, and then you have uh, Paul the Elder and Marcella, um, and there's other women involved there as well uh, that we uh, looked at with their with pilgrimage and that kind of thing. That's where Agaria comes back in, where we look at her piece, um, and then we go all the way through into uh, looking at the empresses. And I spe we specifically wanted to put the empresses, a couple of them at least, not all of them. And there are several of them we could have chosen. We chose Polcaria and Eudokia because they were contemporaries. Uh, which makes them interesting, but they had very different experiences um, in in and in different contributions that were made in early Christianity. And I think that uh, sometimes the Christian tradition struggles with what to do with them, because <laughs> uh, as we say in the beginning of that chapter, um, we can process princess in our culture, and we can even kind of process queen. She's either somebody who has you know pearls and corgis or is or scary and exciting from Disney movies, but we just really have no thought. We don't really know how to process Empress, really, at least in the Western world. Now, we're going to spend time in, in uh, Chinese history. It, that's more recent for them. Um, but uh, so we spend some time thinking through, like, how what does it look like for a woman with this kind of power and what that power looked like? Um, because Polcaria, who she was uh, fundamental to two of the major ecumenical councils in Christianity, and then Eudokia, who is this, um, who ends up sort of having a, a mixed bag, as it were, reputation-wise. Um, but she's one of the few women in antiquity that we still have her work uh, as an accomplished, accomplished woman uh, speaker and writer. 
so I think that covers the whole span of the book, if I got yeah, all that in there. that's well done. Yeah, it's difficult. As there's a, you packed a lot into this book, and I learned a lot from reading it. It's really well done. Um, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit more about Thecla, um, at least briefly, um, as uh, L- Lynn mentioned her and introduced her and had a question I wanted to pursue with regard to her. Now, in the story, of course, um, uh, Thecla becomes Paul's disciple of sorts uh, as Paul shows up in her hometown of Iconium and is preaching the gospel, and she, she happens to overhear Paul preaching and on the, on the, on the basis of overhearing him becomes this radical disciple of Jesus. Uh, and she breaks off her engagement, uh, which is uh, a lot of the plot of the story, right? And then, uh, and then she she continues to um, to per- pursue this uh, ascetic life of, uh, of 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 renunciation and virginity. So one of the things that's an interesting sort of detail in the story, um, you know, is uh, Thecla's activity with regard to the physical location. Uh, that Paul had previously occupied in prison. So Paul had been imprisoned in a certain place, and Thecla gets access in there, and she sort of wallows around uh, on the ground uh, in the place where Paul was previously imprisoned and kisses his chains and rolls around there. Um, And so some have detected romantic or erotic overtones to this behavior. Um, Is this erotic behavior? And uh, if it is, how does its sort of telos or its its aim uh, get subverted uh, in Thecla's story? Yeah, I, uh, I I don't see this as erotic um, in the way that we think of eroticism today um, in the sense of uh, being highly uh, sexualized. I would say that it is very emotional, um, but it's the like kissing of the of the chains uh, would be um, maybe similar to today. Uh, certain Christians uh, kissing relics. Um, There is a sense in which uh, Paul, she she is honoring Paul's testimony, uh, his faithfulness. He he could have been uh, killed by the governor of the of the city. And so the she is uh, embracing the life that he also is living. And in a sense, um, by that action, also giving herself up to Christ, realizing that she may be martyred. As you know, the story, um, she is miraculously saved from being burned at the stake uh, and escapes. So I think she she is uh, connecting with Paul in his sufferings, but not in this kind of sexually erotic way. I also think that you're, we're, we're talking about, I, I like that Lynn brought up relics. I mean, you can also think of um, how uh, <laughs> I think that a, a lot of times in the tradition, Christian tradition, especially in sort of Protestant evangelicalism, we tend to be very in our heads. Uh, we tend to be a little bit now, again, I mentioned I'm from Protestant charismatic tradition. So a little bit more of sort of an embodied, uh, tradition in a lot of ways. Uh, it doesn't strike me as quite as weird. <laughs> and maybe that's just uh, that's just that. But we also have um, in Paula uh, when she goes, um, and, and if I remember correctly, she I think it's it's in the um, where she licks the is it the tomb? <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, I, I love that detail when you added that. Yes, yeah, where she well, was licking I mean, the floor she, of the tomb. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean it's very sort of similar. It's it's uh-huh. this uh, a very close sort of connection of of. Uh, you are sort of what you consume and your affections. So the ascetics were very, 
uh, one of the reasons why they were so, like you're probably reading a lot of these texts, that they're very obsessive about not putting makeup on, um, wearing, not wearing fancy clothes, uh, not eating certain foods. And it seems very sort of overly rigorous, and sometimes it was. Um, but part, a lot of it had to do with what you, what you adorn yourself with, what you eat, uh, where you go, how you move, all of these things that you do with your body, uh, are indicative of, of, um, of where your loves are. Um, so you, to use Augustinian sort of disordered love language, um, if you, uh, went out and did up your hair, um, after you had become an ascetic or put on, you know, purple from senatorial clothing or something, um, that would be seen as, as you having disordered loves, like, um, because you have to, once you have given up that luxury, you can't even have a bit of it anymore because that it's like the, the leaven in the dough, <laughs> Um, <laughs> uh, even a little bit of it. So the, the, their embodiment is sort of shifts around to being constantly about Christ and consuming Christ and adorning oneself with Christ. So even these sort of kissing, licking, eating, uh, all these different things, uh, are again, Christological in, in scope. Um, and they do have sort of an erotic quality to them. I think just largely because, but in sort of an, a more, like Lynn said, more of a, a larger frame and not sort of narrowly understood and sort of over, overtly sexualized um, yeah, aspect. That's helpful. Yeah, I, I, I think one of the empresses you mentioned also, I don't remember if it was Pul uh, Pulcheria or, or the other, um, you know, had relics sort of, you know, that she lived with uh, and intentionally sort of brought into her uh, brought into her palace quarters so that she could she could live right in the presence of the relic all the time. And this would have been fairly normal behavior. Um, well, uh, just because time is moving along here and I want to have uh, the chance to do uh, some things that are a little bit different, um, how about we go ahead, I, I have a speed round that I like to do, uh, and the rules of the speed round are that you just, you get like 10 or 15 seconds to answer and you really don't get to defend yourself, you just, you just tell me, tell me what you're thinking. Um, and so I have one for each of you, well, uh, who wants to go first, Len, you want to do the first or Amy? Doesn't matter, <laughs> either way. <laughs> Go for All it, right, Len. Well, <laughs> okay, well, Len, you're on the hook first then. Okay, so, uh, so so quick responses then. So what do you do to cope when you have a huge stack of freshman papers to grade? A big bowl of popcorn and a Diet Coke. Uh, popcorn, yes. Um, mm -hmm. This is this is I'm real. I'm looking for coping strategies. Uh, so, oh. <laughs> so it's a serious question. Um, all well, right. that was actually a serious answer, and I also turn on classical music. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm into popcorn too. I actually have mm -hmm. this huge popcorn maker in my basement, like literally mm -hmm. a huge one. Um, all right. So, uh, what's a trend in society that scares you? I think the uh, the move towards um, uh, this overt kind of sexualization in clothing and ads and at at what point uh will will modesty come back into fashion that's what i'm waiting on what's the most important theology or biblical studies book of the last 50 years i really enjoy john barclay's paul and the gift oh boy that is a great book what's something you find embarrassing <laughs> this is a speed round i can't answer <laughs> all the things i find embarrassing in a speed There's round. That, I, I reject that question. Go on to the next <laughs> one. <laughs> All right. Um, so if we had a lunch meeting and I drove up in a Porsche, uh, would you think that it is awesome or would you secret, secretly be judging me for excessive worldliness? Uh, 
Depends on the color. Black, you'd be okay. <laughs> Bright red, I don't know. <laughs> All right. Uh, so given women in the patristic era didn't shave their legs or armpits, do you think women today should stop that too? No. No. Okay. All right. Very good, Len. Um, even though you rejected my embarrassing question, that, that is a hard one to, to, to do on the spot. Um, well, um, we've talked about the martyrs a fair bit, and so I want to make sure we, we move beyond them. I have a bunch of other questions on them that I'd like to do, to be honest. Um, uh, how about we go to, to Chapter 4 in Methodius of Olympus's um, symposium? Uh, Amy mentioned that earlier, and obviously this is a passion of hers, as I think this was your dissertation, right? Um, so you could probably talk about this, this for hours. Uh, and so uh, uh, it's, a, it's a reworking of Plato's symposium, and, and Plato has these 10 Athenian men giving speeches in praise of erotic love. And meanwhile, we have Methodius reworking this, uh, as he has 10 virgins giving speeches, and they're competing for a prize. And Thecla is the one who, uh, uh, Thecla wins the uh, the prize for the best speech, right? So what's the point of all this? What's, um, what's, the, what's the point of this sort of subversion of Plato um, that Methodius is up to? Oh, man, that's a big question. I, I think that, um, I don't know if I would call it quite a subversion. Uh, I think, I mean, Plato was what you read. I mean, uh, so he would have read lots of Plato's works and such, and, and sort of generally in the early Christian world, Plato was considered the so close but not quite <laughs> uh, person. Uh, they, they really enjoyed working with Plato because um, there was so much to work with there, and it really had a lot that a lot of helpful things that they used theologically. Um, so I would see oftentimes Plato as sort of a, a, as a, a little bit of a partner as opposed to uh, somebody that they're contending with. Um, but I think that. Methodius sees an opportunity here uh, to to have a. I think it's a bit playful. Uh, I also it's also a, a, a symposium sort of speech sort of thing as a typical kind of thing to write. So that wouldn't have been terribly weird. Um, but I think what I think is really fascinating about this is is not a lot of times we're looking for women. Uh, like uh, all, there's so many unnamed women in a lot of the texts. Sometimes they don't even get names. <laughs> um, and yet Methodius makes up nine women, um, which I think is really interesting. Uh, I think Tecla is the only one that kind of has any sort of literary grounding. The rest of them, as far as we know, are completely fictitious. And I think it's really interesting that he, it, it, when we're constantly looking for women, um, he sort of gives us nine extra ones. Uh, they're just sort of uh, part of the, uh, to, to give us an idea of what it looked like to have sort of an internal conversation about the eschaton. And one of the things I love about this is that it, it spans so many different topics from, and it, it, some of the topics still are on, uh, it does talk about sex, um, of course, from an ascetic perspective on uh, eschatology. There's botany in there, there's numerology in there. And he sees all of this as very, as very, sort of uh, a way to participate in what it's going to look like um, to uh, to spend time with other Christians in the context of of not just the. It's now, but it's also not yet. One of the amazing things about this piece is that you can't quite tell if it's actually set in the now or if it's set in the eschaton or partially in the eschaton or kind of there. It's a little bit fuzzy there, and I think he does that on purpose uh, so that these people are just a little bit ahead of us, people who have gone just a bit further up and further in, to use C.S. Lewis here, um, to, that we can sort of emulate and, and see as people who are leading us that the end is a, is a wonderful hymn that, that 
Thecla leads this procession. Um, and the idea is that we're like Methodius, who puts himself as an, uh, he's not even an observer of this. He's some, he's, he puts himself into the piece as a woman, which is interesting, um, who is hearing about these events. And the idea is for us to kind of enter in like he is uh, to these conversations to to listen to to sort of a little bit a la Socrates, uh, uh, listen to these great teachers um, and uh, and then see this as also our future that we get to participate in them as well. Um, so that's what I think the point of, of the piece is. But the, it's, a, it's a pretty significant work on a lot of different levels, yeah. even though it is, it's, it's one of the weird ones. Whenever students choose to read it, they're always like, what in the world is this? It's amazing and weird. <laughs> it's not the way we tend to do theology, which is one of the reasons I, I like it so much. We don't tend to add voices to our theology. Uh, we tend to have one person write something. Uh, but he, yeah. Well, the symposium for, format is, is, is helpful in that way. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things I thought that was um, particularly insightful was, um, you know, that obviously, although we have these women who are, you know, these um, you know, philosophers uh, of sorts uh, in this story, um, that this is instructive for, for both men and women and intentionally so. You use the term pedagogical pregnancy to sort of describe all that. I thought that was really helpful. What do, what do you mean by pedagogical pregnancy? Well, he's he's drawing this from uh, a similar thing in Plato as well, like the person who begets beautiful ideas from the symposium. So um, this isn't like it's not his particular idea originally, but he's going to draw it in, and Gregory of Nyssa is going to pull up uh, uh, this as well. Of um, instead of begetting beautiful ideas like Mary, we participate in bringing forth Christ into the world in baptism. So yeah, it's, that's rich. Obviously, whenever yeah. we're talking about virgins doing this, right? That yeah. um, it's something that is uh, even in your continents, right? Your sexual continents, yeah. that you can still birth Christ into the world and have a certain kind well, of relationship puts, to the truth. It, it puts these women who uh, uh, the understanding is that you're sort of the the people who are bringing the church to be fruitful and multiply it's very evangelistic in a sense like they're the ones bringing forth new people into the church um and 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 lovingly nurturing them and bearing them and bringing them into the world which i think is really and that puts them at the center of uh, early christian ecclesiology as opposed to at the outskirts which would be different than the desert fathers for instance yeah, for sure. Um, you ready for you ready for your speed round? Sure, Amy? go for it. Okay. So, uh, who's your favorite mother or father of the early church? Oh, Macarena. Macarena. I like. I really liked your chapter on Macarena and Monica. I I would say that if it wasn't for the the chapter on uh, Perpetua and Felicitas, um, that was my other favorite. I, the the whole book is great, but those two chapters I found particularly arresting. Um, okay, well, can you sing a song for me right now on the spot? Oh, Christmas tree, oh, Christmas tree, how lovely are your branches. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Amy. You're, you're, you're bold. I haven't had, I've had a, a number of people like Lynn with the embarrassing question that they just pass on that one. <laughs> I don't know if someone made me do it. I don't know if I'd be gutsy enough. I'm a terrible singer, but you know, why not? You know, uh, you, you did pretty well. Thank you. Um, <laughs> all right. Uh, so the scariest thing about growing older is? Um, wow. Uh, just sort of the unpredictability of the human body. 
yeah, tends to break down. Yeah. The question is um, in what way, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what goes yeah, first? Well, these, these aren't nuanced questions. These are just, you know, throwing something at you. Uh, all right. So do you regularly engage in any artistic endeavors? Yes. Uh, I, well, if, if you can, I would consider as a writing an, an, an artistic endeavor. Um, I used to be more involved. I used, to, I used to play the oboe and I used to paint, and I don't really do that as much anymore. Don't have time. Too busy, too busy writing, which yeah. is a creative endeavor. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't, I wasn't going to allow that to count. I'm, I was thinking, <laughs> you know, making pots or you know, you know painting I, something. I, I, uh, I, I'm a cook, I, so I, I, my, uh, all my creativity goes into. Um, I've been watching the Great British Baking Show, so I have an obsession with tarts right now. Oh wow, wow! That's the I'm 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 looking forward to getting to know you better so that I can enjoy you know eating with you sometime. Um, sounds marvelous. All right, so if you were to complete a PhD, Amy, in a field outside theology, history, or religion, what would that field be? Physics. Physics. Oh, I, I love you. Um, I did. I did my undergrad in physics, actually. I, I, I um, actually and, think, especially with some of the newer things that are happening in physics, uh, theoretical end. I, I particularly like the math end. Um, a lot of the, it's very similar to how theology speaks of what you can and can't know, and sort of how to process through uncertainty, but yet say things. I totally agree, and I, I, I get what you're saying, but a lot of people don't, um, as a lot of people don't understand the link between the two, but I think there is a lot of link, especially in probability weighing and things like that. That's awesome. Um, all right, well, uh, well done. That was, that was the end of your speed round, uh, and so, um, so thank you, uh, ladies, both for participating in that. Um, yeah, and um, I, I'm, you know, as time is sort of marching on here, I'm kind of sort of scrambling through my notes, seeing what else I wanted to um, to ask you about. Uh, and how about we maybe we, we'll, I'll, I'll ask a big question that could possibly intersect with the book, or maybe would go beyond that. Um, but I was curious. You both spoke a little bit to how this book has intersected with your own life story. I don't know if there was anything you wanted to add beyond that. Um, that we didn't get to as some my questions were somewhat pointed and if there was anything you wanted to add about how um, This has emerged in your life how it's changed your uh, Emerged from your life or how it's changed your life in any way or how you uh, you if you want to speak to your hope for how uh, You see it changing the church um, I guess I'll, I would say yeah, I guess what I would say is that I hope uh, as many men read this as women um, because it is also part of their story. Uh, even as women have grown up reading the stories of Augustine and Jerome and, and somehow found themselves also in the story of the early church in that way, I think men can find themselves in the story of a Macrina, uh, even as her brother uh, Gregory of Nyssa did. Um, I, I think that it, it's all of our stories. It hits us in, in perhaps different ways as we live out our own story today. Um, but I, I didn't write this uh, with the idea that only women would read it or that it is somehow a woman's book. Right. I did not either. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. for me... I'll... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> oh, I was going to say, I think you're going to find lots of male readers. Um, I, I think that it's um, it's obviously it's, it's, it's a super book that I, I think is going to find a broad audience. I, and for me, I think that um, in the conclusion, I say this a little bit, but of, of really finding um, the necessity and the importance of recognizing uh, the contributions of 
of people to the church, not uh, like uh, of people who don't necessarily get as much press, but have are as as fundamental to the tradition as a lot of people. Um, I mean, Augustine is is quite large, right? But uh, is you could argue that there's no Augustine without Monica, <laughs> um, and 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 it'd be a good, a pretty strong argument. Um, so who else are we sort of skimming over, uh, and not just in historically, but currently, uh, that their contributions are fundamental. And I also liked the sort of uh, some of the the local color that we had in the book of what it looked like for. Uh, Macarena sort of be a part of Cappadocia, right? And at the very end, I talk about Marie Wilkinson from Aurora, Illinois, um, civil rights leader who uh, her statues, her the, her names on food pantries and and um, and, uh, and streets and such, and she has had such a profound impact on on that city. And I just thought about what does it look like to continue to. Uh, remember people because I, I think with all the the obsession we have now with our smartphones right we have a camera and a video camera in our hands at all times but yet when's the last time that we actually like looked at the pictures that we took <laughs> I, I think that we're having a bit of a crisis of how to remember well uh, and so I hope that this book for me it has helped me to exp- to get to know uh, uh, my tr- not just the tradition, but better. But again, these these sort of relationships with people in the tradition. It's also helped me to look around me more, and to celebrate the contributions that people are making now, and to remember that and to see that as constitutive for theology going forward and and the church going forward. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, yeah, I would. I would just sort of add that one of the ways I think that the book certainly could be helpful is one that I can already see as I was teaching um, history of Christianity, I guess it was um, last year, and um, I had a student who wanted to do a, a project on women in the patristic period, and she ended up settling on Macrina, uh, which is um, very suitable. But um, but we were really approaching the, the course from a theological angle, and she was sort of asking, are, are there theological resources, you know, that, that would, would speak about, um, you know, women's role here. And I, I gave her some, obviously, as there were, but I, it made me realize what a big, you know, I, I would have wished that your book had been written at that point, uh, as I would have, like, immediately handed her this book, right, as this would have been the ideal book for her uh, to be able to begin to explore um, what she was longing to explore. So, um, anyway, I think, um, yeah, it's, uh, uh, it, it will certainly be making an impact in, in the church and in the classroom, I think. Um, so really well done. Um, I guess as, uh, as a, a kind of like a, maybe as a final reflection, um, you know, your, your book really themes around remembering women responsibly. Um, and I think you've spoken a lot about what that, uh, what that looks like in terms of a responsible remembering. What are some of the uh, irresponsible rememberings that you think that we should avoid? Um, that you're hoping that, to not see uh, going on in the church right now. How is, this, how is this material especially being misused that you would like to steer the church away from? Well, I think that some, some of the misuse is just like not, not using it at all or not think not, it, it, like even if you know it exists, you just don't read it because it's not as, uh, just uh, uh, dismissing it as, as not important. Um, I, I think that that's, it's it's an erasure of church history like and i sort of can visualize it in this way i mean a lot of sitting here in you know my office at gordon and just 
looking looking at our shelves, right? Like, where do we put our our discussions of women and minorities in the church, right? Are they do they have their own shelf, or are they part of the theology shelf, <laughs> uh, where we sort of see women's contributions and, and such as exceptions to the rule, like or additions or things that we add on, um, which I think that's a misuse of the Christian tradition. Um, and uh, that I would like to see that change. I would like us to see the Christian tradition um, and what theology is. Uh, I think that's one of the fundamental problems is, is seeing theology as sort of primarily like what these guys did <laughs> um, and their intellectual capital in, in a very particular way, in a very narrow way. Uh, I think that that's, uh, that's a pretty general thought, but... Uh, that's what yeah, I would say. And I, and I, I would um, echo what Amy said. And then I would also uh, add um, or, or just highlight um, the we tend to think of the early church uh, as though they were just disembodied minds, male minds, who, who thought in you know, these kind of abstract philosophical categories that then created the, the creeds. Um, but I think what, what our book tries to do is show that they, they lived uh, a, a story alongside these women who uh, often paid their way allowed for them to have this ministry or this uh, library or whatever. Um, and so the women were uh, not just financiers, but oftentimes that was a, a key aspect of their expression of faithfulness. Um, and that the, the, the theology didn't grow in, in some uh, cave Sometimes there were theological treatises done in that kind of context, but but it also was out in the open. The liturgy of the church is developing at this time, and the artwork of the church and the political uh, context changes dramatically over the course of the centuries that we study. And all of those things play a role in the theological development, just as today our political context and the practices that we grow up with and the the assumptions that we make as post-enlightenment people who have cell phones, <laughs> which I, you know, that it, and we know about germs. And I mean, just all of this stuff um, affect how, how we approach scripture. We are as much a part of our own context as these ancients were. And each and every day and in our daily practices, we are doing theology. Every one of our readers is doing theology. Um, and we hope, I think, in this book that it they become a little more self-conscious of the theology and recognize that words and actions go together. And certainly at this time, people did believe the martyrs up through the empresses knew that their actions uh, very much affected what they thought and vice versa. I think you do a great job with showing how embodiment matters theologically, like both in terms of the nursing mothers of Perpetua and then Felicitas, and then, you know, um, with the, the deliberate virginal choices, for instance, of Pulcheria, um, as, uh, as that was something that was actually a Christological statement and a statement also of eschatological and resurrection hope, but the idea that we can give birth to Christ now, even in our virginity. Lots of powerful things with, uh, I think, uh, with uh, gender and embodiment going on in your book as a whole. Well. Uh, we need to wrap things up. It's been wonderful to, to have you, Amy and Lynn. I've really appreciated the conversation. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it as well. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having us. 
Thank you. This is your host, Matthew Bates for OnScript. We've been enjoying a wonderful conversation today with Lynn Kohick and Amy Brown Hughes, professors at Wheaton and Gordon College, respectively. Lynn and Amy have written this book, Christian Women in the Patristic World, published by Baker Academic in 2017. I hope you'll check the book out. It's well worth it. Uh, You'll find a link on our website, onscript.study. Farewell for now. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study donate.